Father God, uh, your people are praying to you, confessing the sins of the weak. Uh, Father, we do lie. We do steal. We are unfaithful. Uh, We do not uh, obey your commands as we ought to. We have not lived up to your standard of righteousness. And so we confess these things and lay them at the foot of the cross where Jesus' atoning sacrifice pays for all of them. So, Father, we confess these sins. We lift them up to you, Lord, for them to be eviscerated in the cross. Lord, would you please pardon us? Lord, we pray uh, these prayers together as one body in the name of Jesus. For those who have confessed their sins and confessed that Jesus is Lord, hear God's sweet words of grace towards you from Exodus chapter 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. You may be seated. Our scripture verse for this morning comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that it may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I commanded you today shall be on your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. This morning we are starting a new series, a series in the greatest commandment. If you've been with us, we just finished up the book of Acts last week, and we're going to take the next six weeks to study the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment, according to Jesus, as also we just read, according to Moses, is to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Before we dive into uh, Deuteronomy here, I want to pray for us, uh, and then I'm going to explain why we're going to do this series. Why take six weeks on this? So, let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking it to us. We pray that you will glorify it now by making us attentive to it and by showing us the goodness of Christ in it. We ask this in his name. Amen. You are probably all familiar with this command. You probably got it memorized. So why do we need six weeks to study it? We know the command. Love God, love people, right? You've probably been to some churches where that is their motto. That is their mission statement. We love God. We love people. Okay, we know it. Why do we need six weeks? I've got a few reasons for you. The first reason is because our secular age cares a lot about definitions. Definitions are very important. Without consistent meaning, nothing makes sense. And the problem in our culture is that definitions continue to change. The greatest commandment is to love God. That means we need to have clear definitions of love and God. What is love and what is God? The second reason we need this series is because love and worship are inseparably linked. You worship what you love the most. The call to love is a call to devotion and worship. If you know the old Frank Sinatra song, Fly Me to the Moon, it says in the second verse, Fill my heart with song, let me sing forevermore. You are all I long for, all I worship and adore. In other words, please be true. In other words, I love you. Worship. Adoration, longing, even singing here are expressions of love. Which brings me to 
my third reason for doing this series. It's because sin can lead us to love wrongly. Our love and our worship can be given to the wrong thing. Why did Frank Sinatra sing, please be true? Because the woman he was singing about was all he worshipped, and without her, he had nothing. She was all he worshipped and adored. In the Gospels, Jesus says that people worshipped him in vain, that their worship was empty, it was meaningless. So we can love wrongly. That's why we need this series. God, the Bible says, is light. In him there is no darkness. Which means if we walk apart from him, we walk in the darkness. And if we walk in the darkness, what happens? We miss the obvious. We miss what's right in front of us. We miss God when he's right there. We must have a clear understanding of love and of God, of the connection between our love and our worship, so that we can love and worship God rightly. That's why we're going to spend six weeks on this. I should say, um, there's kind of a fourth reason for why we should do this series, and that is because uh, over the last year, we've heard a lot of people tell us uh, to love our neighbor. Right? Everybody has an opinion about that. Love your neighbor. Well, if we don't know what love is, we can't love our neighbor. We think love is a, a feeling, something we just do instinctively, but that's actually not true. We do, as people, have the capacity for love because we're made in the image of God. But that doesn't mean that we are actually loving See, love has a, a telos, a goal, an aim, something that it points to. If our love terminates on ourself or another person or an object, it's not true love, according to the Bible. The aim of all true love is God. Okay, we love others so that they can better see the love of God. Right now, we have this idea that love your neighbor means love them on their terms, which kind of gets us back to that whole definition thing. Love has come to mean accept. Accept your neighbor and whatever it is that they like or want. But God is the foundation of love. And if we are going to learn to love our neighbor, it starts with learning to love God. So God gives us this command. He says, love me. Love the Lord with everything. And it's a very gracious command. Now, that's interesting because if somebody else ever came up to you and said, I demand that you love me, I can only imagine what your response would be. It would probably be to say, see you later and leave. And that's what you should do, especially if a guy ever says that to a gal, just run. That's, that's awful. Um, I remember when I was young, my parents took me to see The Phantom of the Opera. And uh, in one of the songs uh, they sing, uh, the line is, love me, that's all I ask of you. And I remember that line because it struck me, even as a young child, that that's a huge thing to ask for. That's massive. So when God says, love me, we might be inclined to question that. To say, how can God command us to do that? How can he command me to love him? I'm not sure that seems right. Is coerced love actually love at all? Well, the answer is no. Coerced love is not true love. Love is freely given. So by definition, it cannot be coerced. If I uh, take something from you by coercing you, I can't call that a gift. I took it. So how can God command us to love him? Well, the answer isn't in the command here. The answer comes before the command. In Deuteronomy, as we just read, and in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, before the command to love God, before that's given, um, both Moses and Jesus start with what's called the Shema. The Shema, it's a Hebrew word. It means hear or listen. Uh, and, and it is the most important prayer in Jewish worship. 
And it's, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a call to remember God. It's, hey, everybody, listen up. The Lord, he's our God, and he's the only one. This is very similar to the language of the first commandment. The first of the ten is essentially, I'm God, have no other gods before me. So the Shema is the, the bedrock for the greatest commandment, and it's the bedrock for the first commandment. So why did Jesus and Moses start with that? Why is that the beginning of their explanation of the greatest commandment? And I'm going to give you a graduate school lesson here. Okay, you're going to get a seminary lesson right there. You ready? The reason they both begin with the Shema is because the indicative always precedes the imperative. Okay, let's say it again. The indicative always precedes the imperative. What does that mean? Well, before you get a command, an imperative, you need a statement indicating what's true, what is So, for example, the phone is ringing. That's the indicative. Ring, ring, ring. Phone is ringing. Okay? What's the command, the imperative? Answer the phone. We probably all got used to that when we were kids. Right? The the phone would ring. That's Mr. Indicative. Ring, ring, ring. And from somewhere in your house, Mr. or Mrs. Imperative would call out, Somebody answer the phone! Maybe it's your alarm clock goes off in the morning. It's six o'clock. It's six o'clock. It's six o'clock. That's the indicative. It's telling you what is. What is the imperative? Get up. Turn off the clock. Get ready for your day. I, I didn't ever understand or appreciate the snooze button on the alarm until I was in college and I had a roommate. And my roommate really liked his snooze button. And pretty much every morning, the indicative of his alarm would go off saying, get up. Actually, that's the imperative. Sorry. They'd say, "Uh, it's 7 o'clock. It's 7 o'clock. It's 7 o'clock. And he would continue to snooze it. And then it was, it's 7.05. It's 7.10. And he had a really hard time with the imperative to get up and to get dressed and to go to class. And so eventually, he felt my imperative because I found something to throw at him. And my imperative was, get up, turn off your clock, go to class, let me sleep. So, the indicative comes first, and then comes the imperative, what you must do. And this is what God does here. Before he says, do this, he says, this is true. So before he says, you shall love the Lord your God, he says, I am the Lord your God, the only God. And God is kind to tell us this. He's kind because our temptation is actually to forget it. We forget who God is, and it leads to all sorts of disobedience. We know this. We know this is true. Because when our parents told us to clean our room as children and we didn't listen, what were we doing? We were challenging them. We were challenging their authority. We were forgetting who they were and who we are. We challenged the imperative to clean our rooms by first challenging the indicative of their authority. And to help us remember that parents really are the authority when the child challenges it, what does the parent do? The parent gets out the swatter. And the sting on the rear end of the child is a reminder of who actually has the authority and who doesn't. God created a world of authority and submission where children are to submit to their parents. When a parent tells their child to clean their room, what is the child to say? Yes, mom. Yes, dad. When God told Adam to keep the garden, what did he say? Yes, Lord. It wasn't until uh, he started questioning God that he first disobeyed him. Did God really say that, Adam? Maybe God's just holding out on you. Maybe he just doesn't want you to have that really yummy fruit that's there to make you wise. To disobey the command, God's imperative, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve first 
had to reject the indicative of their father's authority. So we have to know the indicative of who God is to understand the imperatives of what he wants us to do. Who is God? God is first and foremost the creator of everything. But interestingly, he doesn't play that card on us. We would play that card, right? Son, go clean your room. Why? Because I said so, right? Because I'm the parent. I made you. God doesn't do that. Here in Deuteronomy, he's speaking to people who have just been enslaved for 400 years. So he doesn't say, I made you. Listen to me. He says, I rescued you. In Deuteronomy 4, God has this great statement. He says, Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? In other words, has any God ever gone behind enemy lines to establish his kingdom? Has any God gone into the territory of other gods to set up his throne? No, we've never heard of anything like that. The Lord's saying, yeah, I'm that God. The Lord just did that. The Lord went into pagan Egypt. Egypt was the superpower of the day. They believed the gods were on their side. They believed they were ruled uh, by Pharaoh, who was the incarnation of the sun god, Amun-Ra. The Lord comes in. He decimates the nation. He decimates the people and their false gods. Egypt and the plagues went dark. They're led by the sun god, but they go dark. All the while, the sun continues to shine on the land of Goshen, which is where God's people were. Those lowly Hebrew slaves that the Egyptians despised. God shone on them. He busted them out of the land and brought them into their own land. The people of Israel came to the Red Sea. They had nowhere to go. What did God do? He busted that wall open too. He busted open a, water, a wall of water and led them through it, all the while drowning the superpower in their train. Has any God ever done that? No, you've never heard of anything like that. So he says to the people, I'm that God. Later in our chapter in Deuteronomy 6, verse 20, God anticipates that people are going to forget in time. Again, he's very wise. He's very gracious to tell us these things. He anticipates that people will forget. And so he says in Deuteronomy 6.20, When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. When people start questioning God's imperatives, what we should do is remind them of the indicatives. Okay? Notice the son's question here. What's the meaning of all this stuff that the Lord commanded you, not me. The father answers, we, son, we were Pharaoh's slaves. The Lord brought us out of Egypt. He brought us into this land and he gave it to us because he swore to our fathers. The father is telling the son, hey, junior, this is your story too. Why, Dad? I wasn't a slave in Egypt. Oh, yes, you were. You were in me. And if the Lord hadn't led us out, you'd still be there. This is why we preach the same gospel every week. We need to be reminded of the indicatives of God and his gospel. Sometimes we get bored at church. Because it's the same old message every week. Yes, it is. Yes, it is, because there is no other message. We forget the message all the time. It's called sin. 
by going back to the indicatives, by remembering what's true, that's how we are ready to face the imperatives. Why do people start their day with Bible reading? Well, because it's truth. Because the indicatives of the Bible prepare us for the commands of the day. And what we need is a daily reminder of God's indicatives, the indicative of God's love so that we can receive and respond to his imperatives. I need that every day. I need a reminder of God's love long before I ever get out in traffic with my neighbors. I'm not going to carry out the command to love my neighbor if I've not first been reminded of God's love, particularly when I'm in traffic. So, before love was ever a command, before it was ever an imperative, it was an indicative. God loved us. Ephesians says he loved us before the foundation of the world. We we didn't even exist yet, but God set his love on us. And think about it. Why would he do that? Why did God love us and come to our rescue? Two reasons. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, the next page over, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, uh, it says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number uh, than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. You hear that? It was because, it's not because you're great. It's not because you're beautiful or fast or tall or talented or whatever it is. He loves you just because he does. He tells us the the reason behind his rescue is his love. But what's the goal of his rescue? What does God want out of it? If you turn back to Deuteronomy 4, it says... To you, speaking of uh, the Exodus, why did God do this? He says, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. God rescued you so that you could know him. How does he want to know you? Does he want to be your acquaintance? Hi God, I'm Andrew. It's nice to meet you. No. No, he is a father He is the father of children, and he loves his children. He is a father whose heart is for his children. Now, here's the crazy thing, though. Okay? These people who needed God's rescue, that were captive in Egypt, they weren't his kids. We, who have been uh, held captive to sin, we weren't his kids. Right? Uh, remember Adam. Adam left the garden. He, he was the rebel kid who got kicked out. Uh, he, he was a child who thought he needed to be an adult. He was a child who decided he wanted a different dad. And so he followed the serpent. Adam, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was not simply him disobeying God's rules, his dad's rules. It was him declaring that he preferred another dad. A dad who let him stay up as late as he wanted and eat whatever he wanted. That's what the devil did to Adam, and that's what the devil tried to do to Jesus. If you remember, the devil came to Jesus and tempted him. He tempted him while he was fasting, while he was hungry. And he says, hey, Jesus, I bet you're pretty hungry. Yeah, some bread would be mighty tasty right now. You see these rocks? You could tell him to become bread. And Jesus says, man doesn't live that way. Man lives by what comes from the mouth of God. Okay, Jesus. Well, you're coming for all of these people, right? Well, why don't you show them something amazing? Throw yourself off the temple, and when the angels rescue you, everybody's going to think, wow, and they'll follow you. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Then the devil shows him the kingdoms of the world. Hey, Jesus, see these kingdoms. I know you want them. I can give them to you. Just bow down. Worship me. Follow me. 
The devil here was not simply seeking to derail Jesus' mission. He was seeking to adopt him as a son. He was seeking to do what he had done to Adam. Leave your father, follow me. Jesus says, get out of here, Satan. For it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. There are two fathers, which means there are two types of people in the world where either children of the one father or the other. If you remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. The Pharisees were following in the likeness of Adam and their father was the devil. There are two fathers. And the whole world had gone after Adam. They had followed their father, uh, uh, Adam, to his father, the devil. That's what 2 Timothy tells us. Tells us we had captured, we had been captured by the devil, caught in his snare. And what did Jesus do? Jesus came to break the snare. Psalm 124 says the snare is broken and we have escaped. A snare is a trap. Jesus set uh, set us free from the trap. So what does that mean? We've been set free from the trap. Does that mean we're a bunch of uh, little orphans running around with no dad? Nope. Back in Ephesians 1, verse 5, it says, In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. He predestined you for adoption. You had a father who was wicked and cruel, who kept you chained, trapped in the basement of sin, and a man came to set you free. He brought you out, and he introduced you to his father, and that father adopted you. And that man who rescued you became your older brother. And Galatians tells us, you know what that means? It means you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You, church, you are the heirs of God's whole kingdom. Our older brother was not greedy for the kingdom. He did not want it for his own pleasure. He delights to share it with you. This is the indicative of love. If we don't understand God's love, we will not love him. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. And we can love at all only because he first taught us what it is and how to do it. That's what we're going to see throughout this series. God does it first. God goes first. He loved first. He's telling us to do only what he himself has already done. So that's the indicative of love. Let's consider the imperative of love. What does it mean to love God? Well, the short understanding of this command is to love him with everything. All that you are, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're going to spend the next four weeks unpacking those four things. But for this week, the imperative of love is quite simple. 1 John tells us that God is love. Um, The Bible describes God in a lot of ways. God is glorious. He is holy. He is kind. We're used to seeing sentences like that. You know, God is followed by an adjective, something uh, that describes, uh, it modifies our understanding of him. If someone says, this is Andrew, you actually don't know anything. You know which person I am, but you don't know anything about me as a person. If someone says, this is Andrew, he is funny, you know something about me. But we don't construct uh, sentences with so-and-so is followed by a noun. That's like saying, Andrew is ball. Andrew is trash can. Andrew is cloud. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense with physical things but it starts to make sense to us with metaphysical things. If you go to a strongman competition and you see just some, you know, crazy jacked giant who is basically like a walking bicep, you might look at that guy and say, that guy is strength. You go to a race and you watch somebody, uh, 
you know, beat some world record, fastest 100-yard dash in history, you might say, that guy is speed. Maybe the uh, best uh, teacher you've ever had, you say, that person is wisdom. And we know what people are saying when they communicate stuff like this. They're trying to say that that person is the embodiment of that thing. You think about uh, Beauty and the Beast. He was called the Beast. But she's just called Beauty. Beauty. And her name means beauty. And what we see in the story is that she truly is beauty, inside and out. And beauty transforms the Beast. So we do talk in this way about some things. The Bible says God is love. Does that mean love is a physical substance that we could extract from him like a, with a syringe? Well, no, it doesn't. It means apart from God, love doesn't exist. He is love. He is the fount of love, the author of it. And he created us with the capacity for love. Why? Because that's what he is. He created us to know him. How does he love? He pours himself out. He gives himself to others. If God is love, how does he express his love? He gives himself. The Holy Trinity has existed for all eternity in love. The Father loves the Son and the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Son and the Father, and the Son loves the Father and the Spirit. God has always existed in an eternal love relationship. And out of the overflow of that love, what happened? He had kids. That's what parents do too. We call it making love. It's a weird way to describe it. Except on some level, we know that it's not weird at all. That's exactly what it is. Now, his kids were created from the dust. He didn't make them the same way we do. But understand that his love produced something and the aim was to include it in that relationship. When parents have a child, what is that child being born into? They're supposed to be born into a family that is a reflection of God, a family that is full of love. When my wife and I got married, we made a covenant of love and we walk in fellowship, in the fellowship of that love. We made a covenant together, we walk in it together. And when our children were born, they were brought into the fellowship of that covenant. They became part of the family. Not in the same way, they didn't become parents, but they became products of love and participants in the fellowship of that love. So there were two of us, now there are five of us. And we talk to our kids all the time about maintaining fellowship. This is very important. If fellowship is broken, we aim to restore it quickly. One of our kids is out of fellowship with us or with the other. We don't let them come to the table, right? Because we want to restore fellowship fast. There are great benefits to fellowship, and they are all there for the kids, all there for whoever is out of fellowship, all the love and joy, the laughter, the playing, the fun, everything. It's all there waiting for them. They're benefits to fellowship. And so we tell them, get back in fellowship quickly, and all that's there waiting for you. If we are not walking in fellowship, if we aren't walking in love, then it's a sad and lonely place, and we actually want our kids to feel that. Um, we feel that with God, too. When God disciplines us, um, we know that it's a sad and lonely place. So God is love. And out of that love, out of his own nature and his own likeness, he made us. To love God is to first acknowledge that you are the product and recipient of his love. And then it's to aim to show that love back at him. In other words, to love God is to display the character of God back to him. We're going to talk about that several times through this series. To love God is to display the character of God back to him. It is to be a mirror that shines his love right back at him. Now, how are we supposed to display his character back to him? Again, that's what we're going to see in the coming weeks. It's how we use our heart and soul and mind and strength. But for this week, the thing that you need to know is that the first response of someone who loves God is they give thanks. They give thanks. They acknowledge that they are the product of his love and they are the recipient of his love. And then they worship him for the love that he's shown to them. Now, I need to give you a couple of warnings 
And then I want to give you a few promises. I need to give you two warnings about mistakes that we can make concerning God's love. Warning number one is this. God is love. Love is not God. God is love. Love is not God. To understand love, we have to understand God first. We do not understand God by first understanding love. Because we love in all sorts of foolish ways and all sorts of foolish things. You ever think about that? We love sports. Okay? We love watching grown men in pads run at each other and collide. We love sandwiches. We say we love other people, but in truth, what that often means is we love what we can get from them. Really, we love ourselves. God doesn't do that. When God extends love, he gives himself. Our culture likes to say, love is love. That means your love for something sinful is the same as a, a man's love for his wife or his children. That's actually an insult to God. That is to say that God's saving love is the same as our idolatry. No, it's not. Love is not love in that sense. And love is not God. God is love. We cannot build our view of God upon our shifting foundation of love. We must build our view of love upon a rock-solid foundation of God. Morning two. What happens when we forget? When we start to question the imperatives and when we reject the indicatives, what happens? Well, we've got a good God. God is a father, and like any good parent who sends their kids off, maybe your kids, they go to college, uh, or they're going out with their friends, uh, or they're just going to their grandparents' house for the night. What does the parent say to them before they go? You best behave, right? Do what you're supposed to. Mind your manners. Um, I remember once in high school, I took a, a girl out one night, and my mom told me to bring, be home at 11. And I walked in the door at 11.10, thinking I had done great. I had obeyed the command. Well, my mom was not impressed. Uh, and we had a talk the next morning. And later that afternoon, that 11 does not mean 11.10. I had to learn my lesson. They sent me out with a rule and a warning, and I didn't listen. God did the same for his kids. He gave them uh, rules, warnings. And again, remember the context of Deuteronomy. God's about to send off his kids into the promised land. He's led them by the hand all this way, kind of like a toddler. They've been like a toddler wandering through the desert, and now it's time for them to grow up. In the wilderness, there were challenges, but God gave them all their meals. Kids never wonder where their meals come from when they're just sitting in their high chair. Suddenly the food just appears, right? That's what happened to the people of Israel every morning. The food just appeared on the ground. This is fantastic. God gave them everything they needed. All their meals, he gave them shade during the day. He was a nightlight for them at night when it was dark. And now all that's about to change. So he says in Deuteronomy 4.26, if you start misbehaving, if you start acting corruptly, if, you start, if you're not doing what I tell you to do, he says this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. That's serious. I think I should maybe say that to my kids someday. See if it makes them obey. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. Okay? If you can't handle the responsibility then you won't have it long. Now, this is not God rejecting his people. It's him saying, if you're irresponsible with the thing that I'm giving you, if you don't listen, the landlord is going to come and kick you out. And then I'm going to pick you up and drive you to boot camp where you are going to do push-ups in the rain and you are going to run and run and you will have scary drill sergeants that will teach you to listen to me. He's disciplining his children. Then he expects them to call home. 
He expects them to go to learn their lesson and to call home. And then Deuteronomy 4.29, he says, From there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget his covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So, if we reject God's imperatives or if we forget his indicatives, it's not going to go well. At best, we're going to end up at boot camp. God will discipline us. He will do something uh, to get our attention and to help us see our errors. That's a kind father. At worst, if we're rejecting God and his commands, his indicatives, what it means is that we were never God's kid after all. That we were actually still the neighbor's kid with that other daddy. Uh, And somehow we just got out of the basement and got caught playing in God's yard. And then we were hauled back into the snare of the basement. You've probably known people like that who were following God great at one point and then suddenly become twice the child of hell that they ever were. That's a scary thing to be. So those are the two warnings. Love is not God, and there are consequences for disobedience. But now for the promises. If there are consequences for disobedience, are there rewards? Are there blessings? Yes, there are. And we need to hear them. We need to know what they are. This is going to sound like health, wealth, and prosperity. I assure you, it is not. Okay? When God makes promises, we need to trust him. Okay? That's how covenants work. There are promises of blessing for obedience and promises of cursing for disobedience. God makes promises in our text here in Deuteronomy 6. He says, if you do what I tell you, this is what's going to happen. This is the commandment in verse 1. This is all the statutes, all the rules summed up right here. Okay, Do this, verse 2, that you may fear the Lord. It's an interesting promise. Do this that you may fear the Lord. And that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly. What are the blessings, the promises of obedience? Fear, good fortune, things go well, long days, and great multiplying. Now, why would fear be a blessing of obedience? Nehemiah tells us that he delighted to fear God's name. That's strange. Who enjoys being afraid? Well, the answer is Christians do. It's not like the fear of a scary movie. It's a different fear. We remember the people of Israel. They watched God's plagues in Egypt. They watched the firstborn die. They watched the pillar of fire. They watched the sea part. Throughout their journeys, they saw everything that God provided for them in the desert. And then they came to Mount Sinai, and that fire that had been following them descended on the mountain, and they heard God's voice. And it was terrifying. And they trembled at the sight of the fire and the sound of his voice. In Deuteronomy 5, just before our text, in verse 23, it says, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness. We have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. They trembled because they saw God. They saw his glory. They heard his voice. And right after this happened, they go to Moses and they say, listen, Moses, um, you need to go talk with God from now on, okay? Because if we look at him anymore, if we hear his voice any longer, we are going to die. You know what God says? He says, they're right. He says, I've heard the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Wow. See, it's the people who are close to God that fear him. The problem is when we stop fearing. Again, when we forget the indicative. The people who are far from God have no fear of him. They're arrogant and puffed up. When you're up next to the greatness That's when you fear. That's when you get scared. Nobody is afraid of falling off the Grand Canyon while you sit right here. Right? That's that's nonsense. It's when you get there that you're looking out over the edge and you're wondering, how far down is it to the bottom? That's when you get scared. 
It's when you're right up next to it. When you're close to the power of God, that's when you tremble. So fear is the first blessing of obedience. When we fear God, we do what he says because we understand who he is. The second blessing of obedience is long days. He says that your days may be long. Now what does that mean? Does that mean we all live to be 100? No, it doesn't. Some of us might get there. Uh, I'm not counting on it. Um, It means that their civilization will continue. It's a promise about the land. When people reject God, what happens? Fights. Wars start happening. Lands begin to get conquered and taken. When Israel rejected God, what happened? Their days were cut short in the land. They went off to Babylon in captivity. Long days means a lasting kingdom, one that isn't conquered, one that doesn't collapse. Israel didn't find that. That's why they were on the lookout for someone like David who would come and rule forever. As followers of Christ, we have found that, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom so solid, so guarded that not even death can get past its walls. In Jesus Christ, we are heirs of a kingdom with eternal days. Our days will belong in the land. The third blessing that God says is that it may go well with you. Obey me and it will go well. You'll have, you know, good fortune. Um, Now this again sounds like some kind of health, wealth, and prosperity. It is not. Because anyone who knows the gospel uh, or who has been working through the discipleship group guides, you'll remember in 2 Timothy, Paul tells us that everybody who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. Okay? Well, if there's persecution, how can that be going well with me? If we look at Jesus, he obeyed God, and what did it get him? He got crucified. Yes, that's right, he was. He was murdered like a criminal. He was crucified. He died. He was buried in a tomb. But what happened next? Did it go well with him? Oh, yes, it did. He got up from the dead. He rose and he went to appear. He ascended before the ancient of days and he received a beautiful bride. He received his church. What else? He received the nations of the world. He received an indestructible kingdom and it is his forever. It went well with Jesus. Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain. Why? Why? Well, because... If we are persecuted, what's the result going to be? God's going to grow us up. He's going to bring us nearer to him. That's wonderful. If persecution goes at its worst and we die, what does that mean? It means the presence of God even better. The blessing of faithful worship is that it will go well with us. God will take us from glory to glory. But he gets to decide what that path looks like. But if we have the promise that we are going from glory to glory, that means it is going very well. The fourth blessing, or promise of obedience, is multiplication. God's people have always desired multiplication. If you think about Abraham, God told him his descendants were going to outnumber the stars, which is really wonderful and also really crazy, because Abraham was an old man who had no kids. Multiplication is God's blessing on a people so that they can continue to be a people. Why is abortion and so-called same-sex marriage such a problem? Well, there are a few answers, but one big one is that it's fruitless. It doesn't do anything. It produces nothing. There's a, actually a, a birth crisis in much of the developed world because people aren't multiplying. We have either become so afraid of the future that we don't want to multiply, we don't want to bring kids into something that we think is going to be terrible, or we're so preoccupied with the pleasures of the developed world that we don't want to multiply because the children get in our way. They prevent us from being able to enjoy and consume. Amongst Christians, this is not as much of a problem um, because we expect a bright future. We, we know the end of the story. We see children as a blessing. Now, the blessing of multiplication is a blessing of responsibility. It's, it's a hard work, right? But it's a blessing of victory. 
And we are receiving that blessing at City Church. Um, we are in some ways a new church, but you all are here. And many of you are new families. And we have lots of kids. That's a blessing. This promise of multiplication to the nation, um, I want you to remember that it was to the nation. It was to a whole people. It wasn't to every individual person. If you get this wrong, you're going to think, if there's something uh, wrong, if I'm not having kids, there's something wrong with me. God doesn't love me. That's not what this promise means. It doesn't mean there were no individuals in Israel who, uh, who couldn't have kids. There, there were, and the Bible tells us stories about them. And so just with that, I want to remind you of two things. This is not the same. Um, I know this is not the same. Uh, Israel was made up of lots of individuals, uh, but they were one people. We are individuals, but we are also one people. My children are my children, but they are part of this community. You are helping raise them. When we dedicate kids, we ask the community, are you going to help us do this? We ask you all to respond. Amen. Yes, we are. So, I know it's not the same, but I want us to see uh, that the promise is to us as a people. The second thing to remember is, again, Abraham. Abraham was old, and he had no children, but God made him a promise. God promised multiplication, and God always fulfills his promise. We are told in Revelation 7 that the number of Abraham's descendants, the number that will be with God for all of eternity, is a number so great that no one can count it. God keeps his promises. So, love is an imperative. It is the greatest imperative. But it was preceded by the most extraordinary and greatest indicative the indicative of God's saving love, his adopting love, his kingdom-giving love, his eternal love, his promise-making love. And the result of this love is truly far beyond all that we could ask or think or imagine. This is our future. This, these are our promises. The kingdom of eternal days with God. Our future is with our God of love. To love God is to know him, and to know him is to truly live. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for your great love. We thank you for the promises that go with it. We pray that you would help us to keep your command, to love you with all that we are, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus as the clearest picture of your love. He is how you demonstrated your love and poured out your love on us. Help us to see the cross as the cost of your love and the resurrection as the vindication of your love. There is no God like you, and so you are worthy of all praise, all worship, and all love. And we are delighted then to offer it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.